In spite of tempers running hot, Joab and Abner form a momentary truce. Vengeance, however, is still an option, at least in the mind of Joab. This is the fourth sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Second Samuel, beginning in verse 25 through the end of the chapter, and then moving into chapter 3, the first 21 verses. Second Samuel 2:25 through the end of the chapter, chapter 3 through verse 21. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of an hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? And Job said, That God liveth, unless thou hast spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up, every one from following his brother. Sir Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still, and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. And Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain, and passed over Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Menahem, and Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants nineteen men and Asael. But the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that three hundred and threescore men died. And they took up Asael and buried him in the sepulchre of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at break of day. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and the second Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite, and the third Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geser. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hegeth. And the fifth, Shephathiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethriam, by Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. And it came to pass, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahah, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? So do God to Abner. And more also, except as the Lord hath sworn to David, even so I do to him. To translate the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner a word again, because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee, to bring about all Israel unto thee. And he said, well, I will make a league with thee, but one thing I require, 
of thee. That is, that thou shalt not see my face except thou first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. And David sent messengers to Ishbosheth. Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife Michal, which I espoused to me for an hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from Phetiel, the son of Laish. And her husband went with her along, weeping behind her to Beharum. Then said Abner unto him, Go return, and he returned. And Abner had communicated communication with the elders of Israel, saying, Ye sought for David in time past to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord had spoken to David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spake in the ears of Benjamin, and Abner went also to speak in the ears of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner came to David to Hebron and twenty men with him. And David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel unto my lord the king, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desirest. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Paul ran to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians in chapter 2, beginning in verse 14 through verse 16. By the same spirit, the apostle says this, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel of peace presented unto us again this day. Now after the death of Saul, David is situated as king over the house of Judah, while Saul's son Ishbosheth is king over the house of Israel. When we saw them last time, the two armies had faced off in what we might call a war game of sort, where 12 of David's men competed with 12 of Ishbosheth's men, or actually it was Abner's men. The intent of that exercise was to show how valiantly these men were and who had the better army. Over against each other, however, was not so much the armies themselves. It was not so much the armies against the armies, the 12 men against the 12 men. It was really about Abner and Joab. It was all about who was more virile, who was more powerful. So in actuality, it was a contest of wills between Abner and Joab. It seems obvious that these men had some animosity for each other. Abner was Saul's cousin. Joab was David's cousin. They had family ties. Both coveted, however, and this is important, both coveted positions of power. And it's obvious that they would do anything to attain it, even pit their own men against the army, knowing that there would be violence, there would be bloodshed. We should understand something else about these men. Both of them, both of them, were of sinful ambition, which is always a formula for problems. And as we saw last time, 
As the war games continued, they got out of hand. Joab's men began to slay the men of Abner, and Abner's men began to cut down the men of Joab. We see this in verses 15 and 16 of 2 Samuel 2. Then there arose and went over by number 12 of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And they caught everyone, his fellow, by the head, and thrust his sword in his fellow's side, so they fell down together. So while Abner's men were playing for fun, it seems as if Joab's men were playing for keeps. Adam Clark describes the scene. He says, This was a diabolical play, where each man thrust his sword into the body of the other, so that the twenty-four, twelve on each side, fell down dead together. Now at the end of the skirmish, if you remember, Abner is beaten along with his army, but that was not good enough for young Asael, who pursues Abner in order to kill him. We saw this in verse 22. Abner then warns Asael to cease from following him. He knew who he was. He knew that he couldn't outrun him because he was light of foot, it says. So when Asael decides that he would not heed to Abner's call to turn to the right hand or to the left, Abner kills him in self-defense. We see this in verses 22 and following. And Abner said again to Asael, Turn thee aside from following me, wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab thy brother? But Asael refused to turn aside, and Abner is forced to kill him. This event sparks out an all-out campaign of vengeance against Abner by Asael's brother Joab and Abishai. Assembling the entire Benjaminite army, Joab and Abishai hunt Abner. We see this in verses 24 and Five. Joab also and Abishai pursued after Abner, and the sun went down where they were come to the hill of Ammon that lieth before Gaia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin gathered together themselves against Abner and became one troop and stood on a hill at the top of that hill. So this sparks out an all-out war. Truly what would happen here is they would destroy each other. But consider Abner's strategy for a truce. And Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? Now, there are a number of things here. Abner is very, very cunning at this point. We would even assume, knowing what he is about to do later on, knowing that he was going to broker a deal with David, we see why this was so important for him to have a truce and not go to war. So there's a number of lessons here. Number one, Abner rightly asserts that vengeance will result in ongoing bitterness and death. Shall the sword have no end? That's what he's saying. Shall the sword devour forever? Will there be no end to this violence? Does vengeance, he's saying, does vengeance have a point whereby it is actually satisfied? Does vengeance ever get satisfied? That's Abner's point. That's his argument. And that was a very crafty defense. It was a right defense. Certainly a war for revenge would never be satisfied. It would only lead to destruction for both sides and it would be ongoing. There would be a feud ongoing. Now there's an old saying, whenever you seek for revenge, be sure to dig two graves. One for yourself and one for the person you're out to kill. No one remains untouched by warfare, especially when it is fueled by vengeance. The second point. If vengeance has no point of satisfaction, if it can never be satisfied, in other words, how will men know when to stop seeking for it? There will always be something else to to go after. And so Abner rightly asks Joab to intervene 
and to tell the men not to seek for that vengeance. Notice what he says, How long shall it be then, ere thou bid the people return from following their brethren? Seeming to reconsider Abner's argument. And notice this about Joab, and we'll learn as we go. Joab too is very, very crafty. Very wicked in his craftiness, actually. So, seeming to reconsider Abner's argument, Joab calls his men back from seeking the death of Abner, at least for now. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. So there's a truce, at least momentarily. A truce providing safe passage for Abner and his men. We see this in verse 29. And Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan and went on to safety. Now after this, a census was taken as to the casualties of the skirmish, while at the same time preparing to bury Asael before returning to Hebron. We see this in verses 30 through 32. And Joab returned from following Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants, 19 men, and Asael. But the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men, so that 303 score men died. And they took up Asael and buried him in the sepulchre of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at the break of day. So we, we, we see that now there's a census taken, and it was a very horrible, horrible slaughter. Now make no mistake about it, this ceremonial burying of of, of Asael and the consecration of his body to the earth and the consideration of the loss of so many men must have been a real bitter pill to swallow for Joab even though they pretty much had a greater victory. In fact, it might have even rekindled some some pent-up anger and hatred against Abner since it was Abner that suggested the war games in the first place. He was the instigator. And therefore, it is of no surprise that chapter 3 begins with, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. There was always this animosity between the tribes, the brethren, the north and the south of brethren. There was no unification. There was no gathering together. Now during this time, Scripture tells us that David's house was increasing in strength, while Ishbosheth's was decreasing in strength. Notice verse 1. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. Now verse 2 through 5 gives us a list of David's wives and the sons born to him. And that is very, very important. Some might say, well, that's really not important. Why, why do we need to know David's wives? Why do we need to know their names and where they're from? And Why is that so important? Well, it is important. No, no. Here we are introduced to Ammon, his firstborn, Cheliab, Absalom, Adonijah, Shepathiah, and Ethraim. All of his sons, born to him from different wives, mind you. Now, Chiliab and Ithriam are only mentioned in David's lineage here and in the book of the Chronicles. Shepatiah's name appears elsewhere through Israel history, but no real significance for these individuals. The main players, however, in the life and the tragedy of David and the kingdom's advancement are Abnon, Absalom, and Adonijah. Those are the names that you need to remember. These young men would give David much grief throughout his life, as we shall see later on. These verses also introduce us to the extent of David's polygamy. Calvin comments, condemning David in this, and attributes to him some form of immorality that he would take so many wives to himself, especially that it was illegal for the king to do so. 
In other words, David should have known better. Calvin explains in his reasoning, he says, quote, We must note over and over again that this sin is condemned by God not as a minor weakness, but as an intolerable crime. It is true that the sentence has not yet been pronounced by the prophet Malachi, but still, it should have been engraved on all hearts, for he charges the Jews that their sacrifices were not acceptable to God, for the altar of the Lord, he says, has been polluted with the tears of your wives, who come there to weep and cry out. In other words, when a man has several wives, it meant that they were oppressed and tormented with anguish. Now we have shown that divorce would be more tolerable than polygamy, that is, than a plurality of wives, according to Malachi 2.16. For he says, if your wife does not please you, then leave her. But why must you torment and make her sad because of jealousy, since people are only too inclined toward jealousy, end quote. Calvin explains that the taking of many wives is an attempt to overthrow God's natural order of the universe. Notice what he says here. He says, continuing, Therefore, whoever wishes to overthrow God's order is a treacherous imposter and perjurer and shows himself even to be in contempt of God's majesty. Do you not see how God planned it from the beginning? Did he not have enough sense and strength to make several ways for Adam, but nevertheless he gave him only one? Therefore, when you go against monogamy, are you not overturning the entire order of nature? End quote. A railing, railing condemnation by Calvin against David. Now to be sure, these are very harsh words applied to the king of Judah and the future king of Israel. Nevertheless, we must understand that David is still a man. Even though he represents the Lord Jesus Christ, he's still a man. David failed to adhere to the law of God as it relates to the dictates of the king. In fact, he should have known better since as king he had to write out the law for himself in his own journal. Moses said very clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, notice, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shall thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Notice verse 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself. Very clear. That his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. The law of God was to be the supreme dictate for the king. It was David's covenant responsibility to adhere to the law of God. And what is so fascinating about David and curious and confusing about David is that David's psalms all speak of the love of the law of God. He's connecting himself, as we shall see in future lectures. He's connecting with the law in a very intimate fashion. And yet, in this one point, because of the lust of his flesh, or for whatever reason, he violates that very clear commandment and he takes upon himself many wives. And yet, confusing as it is, David's love and respect for the law of God was evident throughout his life. But in his humanness, 
in his Adamic temptation. He violates the law not once, but several times, taking to himself wives and concubines. If David were to have a prosperous reign as king, he first had to abide by all of the law. His authority and the success of his kingdom was determined, it was predicated upon his obedience to God's law. How could he ever hope to have a successful reign as king if he violated the law of God? R.J. Rushton explains, he says, man's authority is under God and limited. God's authority is unlimited. Men have no right to interpret the will of God in terms of their wants and wishes. The will of God for men is declared in his law word. The form of civil order may vary. It may be the commonwealth governed by judges or governors or a monarchy. But the supremacy of God's law and authority remains. The only authority in any sphere of government, home, church, state, school, or any other is the written word of God. End quote. So by this single misstep, as big as it was, and it was quite large, by this single misstep of disobedience, in the very beginning of his reign, David, sadly, David lays the foundation for a lifetime of grief and treachery. And this is so very important because notice, a single misstep in your life can determine much of the foundation of your future. Children, you need to understand that. This is a warning for you especially, young fathers, young mothers. How you begin determines where you end up. Think about where you want to end up and walk it back and say, how do I end up here in a prosperous way with God loving me and prospering me? How can I end up there? Here's how. Be attentive to the law of God. So this is a warning to young people, young fathers, young mothers. How you begin determines where you end up. Now we might be tempted to ask why. Why would David, why would David desire so many wives in direct opposition to the law of God? Why would he want that? Well, there are a number of possibilities. Pride. This is the king. Samuel ordained him. God has chosen him. He is the king. Because pride leads to a false sense of one's own importance. A false view of one's own importance and one's own worth. David was a very popular leader among the Israelites, well, in the house of Saul, and then among his own army. In fact, that's part of Abner's argument. You remember David. You love David. He killed all the Philistines. Finally, as a victorious king, he had to battle with his own sense of self-worth as someone to be reckoned with. Secondly, obviously, lust. It's obvious that David loved many women. And in his extreme desire to be carnally satisfied, he took them to himself. I'll have that one, and that one, and that one, and that one over there. Why? Because I'm king. This character trait, sadly, was passed on to his son Solomon, which eventually brought that man to much sorrow, much grief. The carnal appetite of David was also passed along to his son Abnon, who, desiring to be sexually satisfied, rapes his own half-sister Tamar. The problem with opening that kind of a doorway is that it's very difficult to close. Once you open it, once you step in, you can't take it back. Because lust always takes upon itself a life of its own. And in the end, it destroys the host. 
If you do not bridle your lust, it will destroy you. If you do not bridle your lust, it will take upon itself a life of its own and you will be enshackled to it. Just talk to anyone that battles with lust. It's not only all-consuming, apart from the marriage union, it's corrosive. Third point. It seems as if David also had a sense of entitlement. His pride made him think that he was entitled. Whatever was pleasing to David, he believed that he had the right to have it. We find this mindset in those who are in positions of power, both men and women. These include, but not limited to, school teachers, physicians, church leaders, philanthropists, politicians, government officials. We even find this within the marriage institution as it was with David. He wanted Bathsheba. So he took her. I'm the king. I see her. I want her. I'm going to have her. And so David begins the establishment of his kingdom on very shaky ground. And it gives me no pleasure to say that. While the wars continued between the house of David and the house of Saul, Abner was able to show himself a very capable leader of the house of Saul. We see this in verse 6 of chapter 3. And it came to pass, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner, cunning Abner, remember, cunning Abner, skilled Abner, prideful Abner, made himself strong for the house of Saul. Now, curiously, we do not read that Ishbosheth led the army of his father. It was all Abner which seems to indicate that he was not a man of great skill. He was not a man of warfare abilities or leadership potential. In fact, he may have been a bit of a coward or, or a weak type of an individual. And this provided an avenue for Abner to show himself valiant in place of the cowardice king Ishbosheth. Verse 7 brings us to a critical point in the relationship between Ishbosheth and Abner. Notice verse 7. And Saul had a concubine. Now notice, this is the king's concubine, whose name was Rizpah the daughter of Ai, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Wherefore hast thou gone in unto my father's concubine? Now, Ishbosheth is not accusing Abner for going into Saul's concubine. He's asking him, Why did you go in? It's, a, it's known that he went in. It was very obvious. So he's not asking, Did you do this? He knows he did this. Now he's asking, why did you do that? It is to be understood that Abner had done exactly that. And Ishbosheth knew it, and he wants to know why. And yet, the reason is clear. Abner, by going into Saul's concubine, is symbolically positioning himself as king, placing himself as Saul with Saul's concubine. And this is why Ishbosheth is so concerned. This is why he's so angry. This is why he's challenging Abner. Now notice Abner's response. And it's not really a response. It was really a rebuke. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't justify himself. He doesn't make any excuses. He turns it around in a rebuke as if to say to Ishbosheth, how dare you even ask, you cowardice fool. Abner is rebuking Ishbosheth for even daring to ask, since it was Abner that first delivered the kingdom of Israel to him in the first place and then maintained it and strengthened it so that it, rem- it could remain in his father's house. Notice verse 8 and following. Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head? 
which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father, to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David. I'm the one that kept you in power. I'm the one that kept you as king. I'm the one that sustained Saul's legacy. And yet you charge me this day with a fault concerning this woman? Am I a dog's head? In other words, am I to be considered as less than nothing, even as an abomination to the Lord by you? Here's what he's saying. Let me tell you a thing or two, Sonny. If it wasn't for me, you would not be able to stand against David the king. You owe your crown to me. Should I know then? Should I not then? Should I not be able then to go into your father's concubine? Is it not my right to go into her? Am I not really the rightful king of this realm? Is she not my right and my reward? Abner believes that it was his right to move into the bedchamber of Saul's concubine without so much as an eyebrow raised by Ishboseth. And this was the turning point for both the house of David and the house of Saul. Because Abner is now revealing his plan to give over the house of Saul to the house of David. It was always his plan. Notice verse 9. So do God to Abner and more also. Except as the Lord hath sworn to David, even so I do to him. To translate, here it is, verse 10, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan even unto Bathsheba. Now the reason why Abner could do this is because he knew Ishbosheth was weak. And weak leaders can easily be overthrown. It's just that simple. The second reason why Abner could do this is because of his sweeping influence over the tribes of Israel. But first consider, why was Abner able to do this? Why was he willing to do this? Was he not a faithful servant of Saul? Didn't he not want to see Saul's dynasty progress? Was he a betrayer? Was this really treason? Now remember, Abner's character, he was a cunning warrior. And while he was faithful to Saul, he couldn't stand the cowardice of his son Ishbosheth. Another possibility is he saw that David was on the winning side. He wanted to be on the winning side. He had both the army and the prophecy to be king over the twelve tribes without any division of north and south. So Abner said, well, I'm going to go over to him. I'm not going to hang out with Ishbosheth." Furthermore, as a military commander, he knew that a united Israel would be better in the face of an assault by the Philistines. If Israel was going to face off against the Philistines, he should have David on his side. The whole house of David, the tribe of Judah. But he also knew something else. He knew, Abner knew, that if he delivered the ten tribes to David, he might become the war chief over the unified nation, kicking out Joab from the place of power. Very cunning. Abner then launches his plan to turn over Israel to David. First, he asks David, whose land is this? As if to imply, it's your land. Don't you know you should be the king over Israel and Judah? It shouldn't be to Saul, since it was given to you by the word of God through Samuel the prophet. And then he proposes, Abner proposes a confederacy between he and David to deliver all of Israel in verse 12. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, Whose is the land? Saying, Make thy league with me, and behold, my hand shall be with thee to bring about all Israel unto thee. That's what David wanted. And of course, David accepts with one condition. He wants his Michal back. And he said, Well, I will make a league with thee, but one thing I require of thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when thou comest to see my face. Go get my wife. David wants Michal, his wife, back 
from the house of Saul. But there's a problem. Saul had given her to another man while she was still married to David, which was a violation of the law, even a cruel move against David to get back at David. We read no of divorce proceedings or anything like that to render the marriage null and void between Michal and David. Michal was David's wife. And to that, there was no denying, and yet she was illegally married to another man. So in order to secure Michal, David sends messengers to Ishboseth demanding return of his wife, reminding him of David's bride price. In other words, I paid for her with the foreskin of these Philistines. And I think David's mention of the hundred foreskins of the Philistines not only is to remind Ishboseth of the bride price paid for Michal, but also to remind the cowardice king, the son of Saul, that David is a man who could take her by force if he wanted just like he did to the Philistines. And with that veiled threat, which I believe it was, and a fearful threat of violent repercussions, Michal is immediately dispatched to the house of David. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, even from Patiel, the son of Laish. And verse 16, perhaps, very sorrowful. Her husband went with her along weeping behind her. This is truly a sad event for her husband, a pitiful account of this poor man. And yet the marriage, if it was indeed a marriage, was illegal. Abner then forces Patiel to return to his own house and he says, go and return. And he returned. Now, once Michal is on her way, Abner shows exactly just how influential he really is within the ranks of the several tribes. Consider first Abner's influence as someone that can be trusted by the elders of Israel. Notice he's positioning himself. If not for his cunning and his overt leadership under the authority of Saul and Ishbosheth, no one would be listening to him, especially when he's trying to get them to switch alliances from Saul to David. And yet this is exactly the place that he has established for himself, a position of leadership, a position of trustworthiness, a position of courage and of valor and integrity. And they're going to listen to a man like that. That's what we need to position ourselves as. Men of valor, men of integrity, trustworthiness, leadership. If we're going to ever become what God calls us, dominion men for the kingdom of God, we need to be placing ourselves in a position of leadership. Abner was able to accurately assess both the military landscape and the political landscape that he was in. He also was able to maintain a healthy connection with the elders of Israel. Abner was a man who developed an influential leadership relationship with those of importance based upon his cunning and character as a man with leadership abilities. Notice his argument. First, he reminds the elders that they once had a great respect for David as king. And then he appeals to the word of God and the prophecy of Samuel that David would eventually be king over Israel. So why don't you just do it now? Now's the time. And we see this in verses 17 and following. And Abner had communication with the elders of Israel saying, Ye sought for David in time past to be king over you. Why not now? In other words, why not now? Now then do it. For the Lord had spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel out of the hand of the Philistines and out of the hand of all their enemies. This was a great argument. Note the cunning. He points, just like when they wanted Saul, he points to the threat of the Philistines for returning to David. 
making him their king. That was the reason. Just like with Saul. They wanted Saul because they were afraid of the Philistines. Now he's using that same tactic. You're afraid of the Philistines, why not get David, the giant killer? And appeal to their fear, the fear of the Philistines in the same way that they chose Saul for fear of the Philistines. Next, Abner acts as mediator and unifier. He goes to Benjamin knowing that there might be a deeper animosity between Saul's tribe of Benjamin and Ishbosheth and David's tribe of Judah. And we see this in verse 19. And Abner also spoke in the ears of, the, of Benjamin. And Abner went also to speak in the ears of David and Hebron. All that seemed good to Israel, and that seemed good to the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner is positioning himself as a negotiating peacemaker between the two tribes so the entire nation can once again be united under the king David. So what he did was actually he placed himself in a position of control. He's controlling the narrative. He's controlling the situation. You know, too often we allow the wicked to control the, the narrative. We need to take back the narrative. And so what once seemed impossible now is made possible by the intervention of Abner, Saul's war chief. Now, if this reminds us of any gospel significance, it may be likened to the Lord by his spirit acting as mediator between the house of Adam and the household of Christ. It may even be looked at as the unification of Jew and Gentile coming together in behalf of Christ by the Spirit, as Paul explains in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, once the work of reconciliation was accomplished, Abner presents himself with 20 men before David, where David makes a feast to celebrate the reunification of the nation of God under his rule. We see this in verse 20. So Abner came to David to Hebron, and 20 men with him, and David made Abner and the men that were with him a feast. Now don't ever think that Joab is not watching all of this. He's watching it all, and he's concerned about the position that Abner is placing himself in. Finally, Desiring to confirm the peace, Abner departs for the gathering of all Israel unto the king. And in this way, Abner might represent the Spirit of God who gathers together spiritual Israel, God's elect to the Christ, represented by David so that they all be unified as one. Abner's name actually means Father of Light and may even refer to the entire work of the triune Godhead who through the work of his eternal Godhead, that entire triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, unifies the people of God and brings them under the rule of Christ. We see this in verse 21, And Abner said unto David, I will arise and go, and will gather all Israel unto my Lord the King, that they may make a league with thee, and that thou mayest reign over all that thine heart desirest. And David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Sadly, however, Peace would not come easily, for the vengeance of Joab had yet to be satisfied upon his enemy. We will discover that next when we return to our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.